Hi there. Welcome to another episode of F That Podcast. Faith, fantasy, football, sometimes all at once. My name is Seth Whispleway. He, him, his pronouns. I am a pastor, grassroots organizer, a couple other things here in Charlottesville, Virginia. And this is a bit of a fun, creative outlet for me. And I hope for you, it provides a little bit of food for thought, generative conversation, a couple laughs along the way. I will not vouch for the quality of any fantasy football tips given, uh, but we do engage that and have a lot of fun there as well. We believe issues and storylines surrounding the NFL provide a remarkable Petri dish for exploring issues and storylines we all face in our everyday lives here in the United States, and especially as people of faith and conscience wrestling with how to live out transformational love and to confront injustice uh, when so much seems broken, hard, and hurting. So that's what we try to do. Our goal is to challenge through uncensored conversation and ex- exploration of these issues, me and some friends who love to tackle these things. And yes, we do also follow a lot of what's going on. I myself am in three fantasy football leagues this fall. Today, I'm super thrilled because a good friend of mine, Reverend Brittany King Conley, is the guest, and we got talking, as is often the case, much longer than I anticipated. So I want to turn it over to that conversation now, and I thank you for listening. It's a rich, dynamic dive into liberation theology, whiteness, and things related to Colin Kaepernick and the Nike commercial. I leave it to you to decide whether to say F that or not. Today on episode 2.0 of F That, Faith, Fantasy, and Football, I'm so excited to be here with my dear sister, colleague, friend, Reverend Brittany Kane Conley. She is here to talk about all those things. Uh, Brittany, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here to F That. (laughs) And you can say it on this show. Okay, I will. I said I cussed the other day, and it was brought to my attention that that's a very Southern way to talk about it. Like soda and pop. And cola, apparently, I thought cussing was universal, but I guess some people were like, well, it's swearing, cursing. Cursing, it sounds more theological. That's right. (laughs) Well, we're nothing if not theological on F that. F that. Uh, Let's get started by saying a little about who you are, uh, what you're up to here in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, how we know each other, how you understand that we know each other, and uh, yeah. Sure. My name is Brittany or Smash or Rev Smash. I use she, her, her pronouns. And I am the lead organizer for Congregate Charlottesville. And I am also a campus minister at the University of Virginia. And Seth, I believe you and I know each other because about a year and a half ago, we were already friends. That's right. We already kind of knew each other um, just from, you know, Charlottesville circles, religious circles. Um, but we were like, hey, there's some crazy-ass white supremacist things going down in Charlottesville. And we realized that there really wasn't a mechanism uh, to organize clergy and people of faith to show up and to do public witness in these matters. And we realized that there was a huge chasm between faith communities and the activist community. Mm. And we felt particularly called 
Maybe I'll just say I. I don't want to say you did. I think you did. Um, Felt particularly called to enter into that middle space and begin to do the work that was not being done here in Charlottesville. That's right. No, I very much understand it the same. I I think part of the reason we've become such bosom buddies is because there was a common call, uh, even preceding what many call the summer of hate, where Charlottesville became ground zero for explicit displays of white supremacy that, of course, had zero light between them and the White House. Um, But we felt a common call to mobilize people of faith uh, to show up and tell a different story, to demonstrate visibly a third way about what it means to say that the living God um, uh, loves people in public. Uh, in times like these especially, and as it happened, Charlottesville became ground zero for kind of our, our proving space. So we did a thing called Congregate, and uh, it's in very many ways defined our life ever since, but I would take none of it back because I don't think I experienced this clear call in my own life. I've learned and grown, been humbled, and... Um, there's so much more to learn and do, but I think that's a great setup for today's conversation. We're here because conversations, national conversations and controversy surfaced by the former San Francisco 49ers quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, have continued to reverberate, uh, not just through professional sports fears, but through our country's fears. Of course, he kneeled to draw attention during the national anthem to draw attention to police brutality against people of color, against mass incarceration and how that is a systemic oppression and injustice racialized against people of color. And it's become everything it has ever since. It's especially vibrant right now, though, because Nike, a massive corporation, has released an ad campaign featuring him that says, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. And you have some thoughts on this. Like, is there... <laughs> oh, do I? <laughs> yeah. You know, what's interesting in the video ad, and Nike, you know, they, they're, they've sold 31% more product in the past week compared to a year ago. So obviously they knew what they were doing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This was not a risk, and if it was a risk, it was a calculated risk. I think that's exactly right. I think I just read this morning that their mentions on social media are up astronomically, like 1,700%. You know, that's that's what you want mm-hmm. if you're a company, that, that there's no bad press when that's going on. Um, but what's interesting about the ad, and it's connected to, to everything we talk about here, is that it features a lot of individual achievement. It seems to equate individual sports achievement. Like if you believe in something enough, like being the best fucking athlete in the world, you can overcome anything, including your status as a refugee or being differently abled or uh, growing up in Compton or... And then it's unclear how Kaepernick fits into this because as as the article we were reading and we'll quote it a little bit said it's on the the, believing in something could just as easily be blue lives matter or MAGA as you know 
uh, as anything. It's unclear why he's sacrificed everything. Right. I don't. I don't think he has sacrificed everything. He's getting mad money, and I'm not mad about that. No. I certainly support most of everything that Colin Kaepernick has done. I'm grateful for the Nike ad in some ways. I'm glad yeah. that we're talking about this. I'm glad that we're talking about what Colin Kaepernick is actually protesting, which is police brutality. Yeah. However, as I mentioned this right when the ad came out, I said this is not about protest. This is not about justice. This is about making money. Mm-hmm. Nike obviously knows what they're doing. They did lots of research to figure out, would this be a good thing? Would this be a bad thing? Um, And they knew they were going to make money off of this. That's what Nike does. Nike exists to make money. Nike does not exist to liberate people. Right? So, yeah, it's complicated. While I I appreciate the message, um, I certainly believe that monetizing movements for justice does no one really any good. Um, I I do think that all of the hoopla, if you will, can be a good thing. Um, It can create more conversation. It can create more movement. And hopefully this will actually create on-the-ground action organizing because we know that's that's how change comes about. Um, But the whole money aspect of it is really unfortunate. And for me as a faith leader... I think it's important to also call out that this is just another way to perpetuate consumer capitalism, which, as you have already mentioned, um, is a gospel here in the United States of America, but is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's right. That's right. The, The gospel of Jesus Christ is diametrically opposed to the dominant spiritualities of the United States. You raise a good point because I think there is a positive that, that thus far Colin Kaepernick has put his money literally where his mouth is and yeah. often actually isn't even like speaking. He is letting his actions. He is showing, not telling. And so I am intrigued by the potential silver lining um, that, well, if he's getting paid and he's in the news, then it keeps the conversation going and off to the side here a little bit. Yeah, Nike's doing what it's always doing. So maybe... Part of the temptation is to make Nike the story um, and like have this debate when we could just say like, well, Nike's doing what Nike's doing. Um, but Kaepernick and, you know, just this past weekend, two Dolphin players, Kenny Stills and Albert Wilson, the second kneeled on the field for the anthem uh, clearly. And like we're able to speak up and get some press generated around it. Uh, so this is not going away. And so I don't while I don't want to thank Nike, we can at least say like, they are helping it not go away. And then maybe it's up to us to say, like, let's bring this focus um, where it needs to be. I think as many people know, they also have the contract with the NFL for all the uniforms. So they're fine. Which and, is funny. That's yeah. funny. That's, I mean, all, it is. all of this is, is kind of funny, right? So yeah. Nike is a corporation. I don't really think there's a whole lot of moral imagination happening with inside of Nike right now. But it's kind of funny that they're, you know, supplying all these uniforms and then they're also featuring the guy that the NFL hates. Yeah. Um, So, you know, kind of props to them for making this a situation where everyone is uncomfortable because things don't change unless people get really fucking uncomfortable. That's right. And it's very telling. It's so telling that this one little thing um, has become 
this massive thing. And in a sense, it's, it's a gift because it shows how I can't even find a strong enough word, how bought in to the mythos, to the religion of white supremacy, um, our country is that a very vocal and influential segment majority of the country are losing their goddamn minds over this. And um, as you said, you know, Nike does not liberate, even Colin Kaepernick does not liberate, but he can perhaps, you know, he's been very clear and very, him and Eric Reed, the former 49er safety, continue to be, use explicit, often Christian language and talking about their protest and why, as well as leaning on many other uh, African-American uh, liberation uh, thought leaders uh, from different traditions. Um, what does liberate? I know you've been, especially after the year we've had in Charlottesville, we've got a little bit more breathing space bodily and spiritually on the other side of the August 12th anniversary. What are some of the things you've been reading? Definitely diving a bit more into liberation theology. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the campus ministry that I lead, the students this year were really interested in liberation theology and looking at the Bible um, from the lens of activism and kind of wondering how those things go together. I think probably some of that was like, hey, Smash, you're here doing this thing and we see you doing all of this organizing in the community. Um, how do these go together? Right. Because the students, they have been raised in primarily middle to upper class white Protestant households, um, either religious or non-religious Protestants. There's an ethos of mm. white Protestantism in our country that right. you don't have to actually you know, be religious to buy into. That's where Christian supremacy comes in because Absolutely. you social equity comes baked in in the United States just for calling yourself Christian. Oh, for sure. So, yeah. So these, these students are coming from these backgrounds um, mm-hmm. where they have never seen activism linked at all to the Bible. Mm-hmm. And many of them, like most Christians in America, and I'm, I'm going to put little quote marks around Christian even though you can't see it, like most Christians in America have really no concept of the biblical narrative whatsoever. Mm. So it's been really fun. We just started and exciting to kind of dive into liberation theology um, and really look at the Bible. Last yeah. week we took a tour through the Gospel of Luke. Um, and looked at a passage after passage where Jesus is condemning the rich, right? And then the students were like, oh my gosh, this is all throughout the gospel. Like right. it's time after time, I'm seeing some consistency. And it's just fascinating because they'd never had seen that consistency before. And that was just a really simple kind of overarching view through one gospel in this biblical narrative. Um, so it's been really exciting and um, liberation theology I think is theology. I, I think um, the gospel is and should be liberative to the to the least of mm-hmm. these, to the poor, to the marginalized, to the oppressed. Um, and it certainly hasn't been for much of Christian history, but there have been pockets mm-hmm. of really rooted, aka radical, um, movements of the way of Jesus that have been liberative for right. the oppressed. And I want... I want people to know that and I want my students to see that right. and to understand that another way is possible. Right. It's self-evident. It's self-evident. Once you really dig into it, right. of course, it isn't self-evident for people who right. don't wish to see it. No, I use that as a loaded term. Everything you said is so rich 
and the coffee's kicking in, so I want to make sure we can unpack it all. Um, so I'll try to focus my thoughts here. First, you know, I I often we point out that white supremacy and white privilege, the greatest victory of these things is to give white folks, as you and I are, um, the ability to opt out of wondering why we're even privileged or supreme at the top of the heap in the first place. Or even realizing that we are. Exactly, or even realizing that we are. Christian supremacy is kissing cousins with white supremacy, but like you got at the nub of that truth so well, see, is because you don't have to wonder why there, there might be any stakes to doing this thing. You can kind of like, read your scripture for the day and, and move on and well, absolutely or not it. not even read your scripture right so i yeah. i grew up or not even in a non-religious household assuming that i was christian yeah. if anybody asks i yeah. would say i was christian but i had no idea what that meant but i yeah. was christian because i was a middle class white american right and that's just the norm and it's better than saying you're not because someone's going to come after you <laughs> right and I, I had no idea what that meant like i right. just i thought that was the norm and now i understand that Christianity and American status status quo slash civility oftentimes is the exact right. same thing, right. which is some bullshit. Right. It's some bullshit. And what's fascinating, I grew up with this tension and dichotomy as well. And this is where I'm going to come back to liberation theology because liberation theology is the only reason I think I would even claim a faith and I'm a professional Christian nowadays. Or, or when Jesus starts his public ministry as told by Luke, he does it by reading from the Isaiah scroll, what we now know of as Isaiah 61 and the servant song. And Jesus gets up in front of the congregation as an adult person, says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's reading the scroll to bring good news to the oppressed, liberation to the captives, comfort those who mourn, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, all those powerful, bold things that are rife through uh, the Hebrew scriptures. And then he closes it, drops the big one and says, oh, by the way, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So for those of us now who want to take up that, here's why I'm Christian and say like, I'm following in Jesus's footsteps. I'm, what would Jesus do? That's it. That's it. He literally says it's, it's this, this sending that we see not just in Isaiah, but throughout the prophets back to Moses and through history, it is. To do these things it's not the other things mm -hmm. you, you kind of have to start there um it's not whatever you want to say it is no one's forcing you but if you're going to claim a going steady relationship with jesus are you doing these things because the united states sure as shit isn't and that is what colin kaepernick's drawing attention to right and i gave my ted talk on twitter the other day and <laughs> said that i would rather spend my time trying to figure out how to follow Jesus than talking about him all the damn time. Right. And that really has has been what a lot of church is that I've witnessed is a lot of talking about Jesus, a lot of talking about salvation, a lot of talking people will even throw out the word liberation, but they don't actually mean it in a very mm -hmm. real sense. They don't actually mean it um, in a way that liberates the very bodies right. of the least of these. Um, they mean it in a very like ethereal um, my soul will be liberated That's one right. day after I die, which isn't actually biblical. Um, it's a it's a small piece of the biblical narrative, but it's not the biblical narrative. Right. And 
But you in know? the meantime, you're going to sin all week. So make sure you come back next week for your washing and the blood right. and the grace. And so what I hear you saying is that talking about Jesus so much is actually a distraction from actually living as Jesus um, calls us to live. Right. And so, and you said biblical narrative. What to you is the biblical narrative? Because I just said like biblical could mean anything but what i meant was sort of like this like point and shoot at scripture and verses mm-hmm. to make it mean but to you there's a unifying yeah theory. i mean i don't think there's one narrative I, I do want to say that i think there are a multitude of narratives but for me kind of the underlying foundational narrative of specifically the gospels or yeah. the gospel is that jesus a really unimportant person from right. an unimportant place in the world um born to teenage unwed parents right a brown-skinned um, brown Palestinian Jew. yes absolutely did this thing um which was really nuts i mean people during jesus time thought he was like absolutely wacko right? right he's just roaming around the countryside teaching people doing miracles healing the least of these questioning power and authority and he was executed by the state right and the radical claim is that he still lives the radical claim is that um, he still lives and we have access to this, to right. the way of Jesus, to the spirit of Jesus, to the spirit of God, um, and that he can still live um, in the here and now and the way that we operate our very lives. Right. That to me is the basic foundational understanding of the gospel and that Jesus absorbed violence right. in his body so that others would not have to. And that was a lot of the center of the organizing, you know, that we've right. been doing is that we should be alongside people who are wailing in the streets right. because God is there and we should be there too. It was a pastoral call. And that was certainly my, my focus in trying to exhort and plead and cajole and just talk with a lot of other pastors here in Charlottesville, which was saying people are scared and they're angry and they're hurt and confused. When we take on the mantle, the title of faith leader, isn't that our pastoral response? And I think ultimately it was only seen as prophetic because so few uh, comparatively showed up. And that gets at that self-evident comment, though, because what was self-evident to us, it, it was relational. It was coming alongside. It's more a question of whose voices do you listen to, foreground, and prioritize and that's the undergirding lynchman to liberation theology mm. uh, is that, you know, is what Father Gustavo Gutierrez calls a preferential option for the poor. Mm. So what they saw when they read that same passage from Luke 4, uh, where Jesus takes up the ministry of Isaiah and says, this is my sending and yours as well. And that's it. That's the fulfillment. So if you want to fulfill what I'm about. What the liberation theologians did is saying, like, what if we lived as if that was true in a world dominated by destructive theologies? Colin Kaepernick, in a sense, is a liberation theologian. He, what he showed was how absurdly yoked the United States is to those dominant theologies because all it took was a knee. Mm-hmm. For Father Gustavo Gutierrez, it meant taking the church, the Catholic church, into the poorest slums of Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, for you and I, uh, compelled by these challenges and by the leading voices um, of activists, uh, women, 
queer folks, people of color, all of the above in our city, it meant taking to the streets. Um, there was a question in there and it had to do with liberation theology. I know what it is. So, so how do we move from what's self-evident to the folks we're talking about, right? Because mm -hmm. Colin Kaepernick, he doesn't need to say much. He's like, I read the scriptures. I read the new Jim Crow. I see the viral videos. This shouldn't be so. Mm -hmm. I'm going to kneel. And it was like fucking nuclear bomb. I think we've established pretty well how Christian supremacy kind of um, drugs so many of us. We can have grace and space for how people in the United States, mm -hmm. especially white people, are uh, drugged, for lack of a better word, deadened uh, to the urgency because we can go to our social equity clubs, do our good deeds, uh, read all the right books. Um, I think my question to you, to all of us, is then why is liberation theology seen as a special like niche thing? Yeah, I, I was at a discussion last night and was asking the question, why aren't we all just reading womanist theology? Like, why isn't that the basic foundational theology that we're reading? Womanist right. theology being the theology of African-American women um, who realize that both black theology written and created by black men and both feminist theology by white women didn't address their um, very real lives as black right. women in America. Um, but I, I think, not obviously, it's probably not obvious, that oftentimes throughout Christian history, Christianity is absorbed by power structures, mm -hmm. um, and Christianity essentially becomes um, the perpetuation of power. Mm -hmm. um, that is how power structures continue, as they absorb anything that looks like it might be in opposition to right. it and makes it about itself. The reason I think uh, liberation theology is so important because I feel like inherently built in to this, to these theological ideas are, is the fact that to do liberation theology requires that you are um, actually living out these things. I mean, mm. you were talking about Father Gustavo Gutierrez. He essentially said, you know, all of this is bullshit. He didn't say that. So don't quote him as that. that, that <laughs> he was said me. it in the original Latin. Yeah. He said, all of this is bullshit if we just talk about it. If we just continue to like write, write and read these books on, uh, you know, the liberation theology. All the theology books have been written already. Yeah. He's like, this only matters if it is us acting. If it is us actually being alongside of the poor. This only matters if it actually liberates people from oppressive structures. Uh, and I think with that being built in, um, when, you know, the liberation theology kind of starts to get more academic um, and more structuralized, there are always the people bringing it back saying, this right. is not what it's about. Right. Um, it's about something totally different. So, you know, I, I like to think that that sort of um, approach to life or theology is where we all need to be. We all need to have a stance that consistently allows the spirit to come uh, into us, into whatever we're doing, and really just shake things up. That's um, right. A spirit of deconstruction, if you will. Right. Um, 
But right. that, that is the only way to go about right. it. Because whenever we think we've gotten something right, even if it is like, oh, liberation theology, it's right. the it. Once we get a firm grasp on something, right. um, is the time that it becomes exactly what it should not be. Right. So the stance of allowing the spirit to come in and rough things up and make us uncomfortable and push us further and further towards the margins um, is the stance of liberation right. theology. And it essentially deconstructs itself as you know, womanist theologians go to black theologians and be like, hey, yeah. you're not addressing my reality. Or go to feminist theologians and say, hey, you're not addressing my reality. And I think it will continue to do that. And it's really beautiful to see. That's right. And in a sense, the spirit you're talking about, is it's the enemy of orthodoxy. I mean, we, we talk about how when Christianity kind of spread throughout the world was when the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. Like, we just need to call bullshit on that language and start a new one. No, that's when Christianity converted to the empire. Mm, thanks, Constantine. Yeah, exactly. And if we start from that understanding, um, then we see that these voices and theologies, quote unquote, at the margins, that's what theology, that's what liberation theology is saying in its process is like, the margins are the center and vice versa. Mm. And so if we understand our empirical constructs is saying, white men are the center and it means that for guys like i a i need to stop talking so much on my own podcast <laughs> but it means like what i do to deconstruct is to say to the black woman mm -hmm. we're the ones fucking it up and even if my perspective is designed to not fully understand what's needed if i default and listen to you that will be a more liberative process. It won't just get at what's gospel truth, but technically on paper, what we say we care about in the United States, which is that all people are created equal and endowed with rights. Yeah, I definitely hear that. And I think it, it's important to point out, um, even in the writings of Father Gustavo Gutierrez, mm -hmm. that he, obviously he wrote these books and he is credited as kind of the father of liberation theology, but he will admit that the theology that he is espousing was created in these base camp communities, right? Yeah. This theology was created by the poor, like with the poor, alongside the poor. And it's not something that he was just kind of hanging out by himself deciding. Right. That this was theology in action. That it wasn't um, just some sort of ideological right world he is creating that this was created with like the blood sweat and tears of people who are actually struggling to live right. and that is in my opinion and i think in maybe the gospel's opinion like <laughs> that that is where god is and that right. is where jesus was and that is where we should be as well right that the faith it's not that you know the church gave gustavo his his theology mm -hmm. and then it he experienced spiritual dissonance in the slums of peru and went back to his study and said, oh shit, now I have to reconcile this. It was more that he's saying, no, the face of God was made known to me in the mm. poor. And then that, that for that's going to bleed back through the theology and then needs to go all the way back up to the quote unquote mm -hmm. top. Um, yeah, I mean, if we talk about, you know, people like to talk about good news all the time, right? So if I am a rich white person in America, the only good news to me yeah. is that I can continue to be a rich white person in America. Right. Anything else is not really good news because it makes me uncomfortable. It right. kind of, you know, dissolves who who I am. Right. It dissolves my identity. Um, so that is not good news. But we, as rich white people in America, yeah. 
have created good news that continues to perpetuate the right. good news that we want to have. But right. it, like as you mentioned before, uh, is completely contrary to right. the good news of the gospel. That's exactly right. And uh, being rich white person in America by default is built on the lie of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Biblical, we can make mean almost anything, but living with gospel specificity means very specific things. And so I'm going to like draw us towards where we are right now in our current moment and, and ask you a bit, like specifically, what does this look like? Acknowledging that we can't be responsible for all the headlines. What can people be about in Charlottesville, for example? Yeah, I mean, I really don't... I do understand. I keep saying I don't understand. I do understand because I've come from these places and uh, my life has been transformed by seeing the face of God in the least of these. Um, and for the record, can we just jump in a sec? Like, what do we mean by the least of these? Because for anyone who's listening, not used to like Christianese language, mm-hmm. I fully get it. And I use the phrase all the time, but it could almost seem like, oh, little ones like patronizing. Least of these just means whoever the empire is like stomping on and not valuing right right so yeah with liberation theology it starts with the poor and then moves on to other um oppressed designations right and basically saying that the quote-unquote least of these are actually this is who the kingdom belongs so you better Mm -hmm. start fucking listening to them right asap right and i mean that's what jesus did and that's what jesus said um, when we're talking about gospel specificity for those folks who are fighting for things like ice who are fighting for things like um, military occupation, so on and so forth, for those folks to then claim to be Christian, um, yeah, it's baffling. It's baffling to many of us who have an understanding of the gospel as being liberative, yeah. as being um, focused on liberating the least of these, because many of these institutions continue to squash and squash and squash yeah. people who are already oppressed by right. systems. Um, and it's because we have in America and other places completely spiritualized Christianity to have nothing yeah. to do with actual bodies, to have nothing right. to do with actual life. We've all made it about going to heaven, um, and that's really all it's about. And it doesn't matter what the fuck I do here and now right. on earth. It's just about having this afterlife. Um, so that's why people, you know, like a county sheriff, for instance can say like no we're going to continue to call ice on these quote-unquote like illegal aliens uh because that makes us feel better because that makes us feel safer because that will continue the good news to us white people which is that we are in control that we have the power and that nobody is going to take that away from us. and his privilege and the power structure gives him that much more cushioning from imagining what it's like to be on the receiving end of that deportation because you got pulled over because a light bulb went out on your car Mm -hmm. or you missed a child support payment or something, you know, like the Sturm and Drang is, is always about like, well, about MS 13, but it's not about that. No, it's not about that. That's a a scapegoat. That's a cop out. That's totally right. Every other thing we deal with. What, what I hear you saying very clearly is, is liberating for me because I still find myself oftentimes policing my own self and language as a faith leader, as a Christian leader at the intersection of whiteness, Christian supremacy and more is I'm petrified of being perceived as judgmental. The policing that happens, I'm doing it. I found myself doing it to myself and I want to be able to say, 
fuck that. Like, some things have to be true. Otherwise, what are we doing? Like, mm. that's in the name of Jesus. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, what's happened, I think, in a lot of white liberal Christian spaces is we've really swung the opposite direction from any sort of judgmental theology, right? Because what we have grown up with is judgmental theology that says, like, mm. we're sinners if we're gay or stupid shit like that that really isn't biblical right. or gospel specificity. So we swing the complete other direction and say, God loves everyone. We aren't to be judges. Right. We should accept everything. We'll right. let God figure it out. But that is not biblical. You know, no. I hate when people use this term. It's not biblical, but God. <laughs> it's literally not in any not. of the 66 books. Right? So <laughs> Jesus was all the time judging systems around him. That's right. Um, judging oppressors. God, you know, we don't like to talk about God as an angry God. God is an angry God. Yeah. God hates oppression. Right. God hates systemic oppression of people who are constantly downtrodden, abused, and killed. God doesn't like that. And that right. is okay to name. Right. That is okay to name and to claim. It's just we don't want to do that because... Um, the, You're not humble enough. The cis-hetero white dude pastors who have been shouting about God's anger for centuries have been talking about things that God's actually not fucking angry about. Right. It's just things that they were angry about, right? But if we look at the biblical narrative again right. throughout the First Testament and the Second Testament, if we look at the Gospels in a very specific way, like God is pissed off right. about oppression and injustice. That is why God decides to come and be with us, right. kind of amongst the least of these, to do something different, to turn everything on its head, to be rooted in the way of freedom and life and liberation and justice and love. And God is angry at right. shit. And that is okay for us to name and claim. Yeah. If we want to make some truth claims, that's it. That's the process. And whiteness is what's so rigid and stuck. And you know I've come a long way in the past year and a half, um, mainly through putting myself in process. And I've still got a long way to go. But what I wrestled with for a lot early on, before August 12th, 2017, was trying to hold that tension and being very sensitive to not explicit accusations because white people don't accuse each other explicitly that's another purview like keep yeah. it conflict free passive aggressive but very passive aggressive and i've got the receipts and email and i said this is really important i think we got to show up the people are people at the margins are calling us you know for also for all you people who are scandalized by trump's election now's your chance because the nazis are coming to town and they look like uva grads because they are uh sorry that's university of virginia um Meaning like they came in the polo shirts. These are not snaggletooth Klansmen or whatever you want to think they are, right? And I'm doing better at it, but I'm recognizing even on this podcast, like it's still this thing because, um, boy, the forces of empire and the forces of Christian supremacy and the forces of whiteness are still so mm. dominant. And when we called out like, okay, all y'all pastors quoting Martin Luther King 51 weeks of the year, here's your time what was so disheartening was to get the letter that king was responding to in a birmingham jail quoted back to us meaning that the eight alabama clergymen wrote him saying you're you're surfacing tension you're inciting violence there's a civil way to do this just ignore these segregationists 
you know, and, and yeah, stick your, to the your, pulpit. Your time will come. Exactly. You know, what unjust laws, you know, are, these things will like pass. We heard all of those things explicitly. And the tricky thing is like on the other side of August 12th, when we basically said, fuck that anymore. Like, I think we, we proved that wrong. Whiteness still can be like, we choose to opt out. And there's a lot of folks here in Charlottesville who I think want to go back to an August 10th world. And yet August 10th, for even though for some of us maybe yeah. felt a little bit better, like, oh, Charlottesville's great. We have lots of craft breweries <laughs> and lots of live music and we can go downtown and just feel really good. But that wasn't the reality right. for most of Charlottesville's residents, right? Like Charlottesville, the city itself was built upon white supremacy. That's Thomas right. Jefferson built this university right. in this city. He didn't actually build it. Like his slaves built it, right? That's right. So the entire foundation university. of Charlottesville yeah. is white supremacy on stolen land, right? right? From the native peoples who were here originally. So this idea yeah. of like, let's just go back to feeling good about our white liberal selves yeah. um, is bullshit. Yeah. And... I don't even know what we were talking about before we were talking about this. I just got really excited. I think how we got there, though, was in saying that, like, to us, liberation theology isn't just sort of an avenue. Like, I'm a liberation theology Christian. For us, (laughs) it's a a self-evidentiary way, like, in the shadow of empire, being crushed under these dominant spiritualities. We're kneeling in silence during a football game gets you cast out what else should we what else could you even like subscribe to in a straight face to call yourself a jesus follower i guess is what i'm saying kind of circling back to this idea of all things good being sucked up by the very systems that they stand against i mean you you mentioned the reverend dr martin luther king jr which this always gets my blood boiling Mm mm-hmm because whiteness has overtaken his message, right? So we like to feel good, like, oh, like, I'm going to choose love because violence is too much to bear, right? That's right. Hate is too great a burden. Right? So I'm just always, like, posting everywhere I can the pictures of uh, the Reverend Doctor in jail because he was arrested so many times. Right. And so, you know, the, the white folks who will just blast all of his quotes everywhere will tell all of us in Charlottesville who keep showing up for court support, who keep showing up at the magistrate because all of our friends are getting arrested. Right. Be like, well, that's not really the way to go about right. it. Um, if you know, if you would just listen a little more, be a little more quiet, maybe stop yelling, then um, all of these good things would happen. Just listen to the Reverend Doctor Martin Luther King right. Jr. Like we have to love, and you're just like, no, stop it. Like that's right. He would be so pissed to know that we've completely whitewashed That's everything right. about him. And I think it's the same thing is happening, perhaps, and I think we need to be aware of this, with Colin Kaepernick. Mm. Is Nike, perhaps, mm-hmm. is now taking these very real and necessary protests and mainstreaming them in a way mm-hmm. that we can continue to function in all of our whiteness Mm-hmm. and still think we're contributing to right they're putting so, like the equivalent of Che Guevara's head on a backpack you could find at forever 21 in the mall <laughs> <laughs> yes that so now all of a sudden I'm like yeah like if I just go out and I buy some Nikes I'm really contributing sure. to the revolution Viva la resistance. which is just bullshit right like right. you're just putting more money in the pockets of Nike however if we can remember 
why Colin Kaepernick kneeled in the first place, which was to bring attention to the insane, intense police brutality in our country, the very real reality that black and brown bodies are being put into the ground because white people are afraid. Right. If we focus on that and turn back towards that, um, this can be really powerful. We need to. I, I kind of hope we just stop talking about Nike. Let's not talk about them anymore. Right. Buy Nike shoes if you want, sure. Um, but keep talking about pollu- police brutality. Keep showing up in your own town. Right. Keep confronting. Keep videoing. Um, keep taking a knee wherever you are. Right. You know, sure, it's great Colin Kaepernick did it. He got this thing started. But there are like actual school children being disciplined in their schools for taking a, a knee during the Pledge of Allegiance. Like, those kids are actually risking something. That's right. Colin Kaepernick is still a millionaire. I get right. it. He's not getting to play football anymore, which is a bummer for him. Right. He's still a millionaire. He has everything he needs. Right. But these school children are actually risking so much more by taking a knee. Right. And, like, that's where the risk is. The risk is very real in communities on the ground, right. people organizing to address real local issues of like the people here in Charlottesville who are addressing stop and frisk here in Charlottesville, That's which right. is ridiculous. Those folks who are actually poor right. and oppressed um, are risking everything to buck up against these systems of oppression. The danger of the Nike commercial is this sort of bumper sticker you see. I saw it just yesterday here in Charlottesville. Like, I don't need my wealth passed around. I want my work ethic passed around. (laughs) And that the Nike commercial says, like, if you believe in something strong enough, you'll get to the top of the heap. Like, if you will it, it is no dream. Boom. You know, there you go. You can have a Nike deal too. And and that appeals to white folks, not just conservative or libertarian, but also progressive. Because we love the idea of, like, it's, of, of, oh, there's more we can do. Where really what Jesus calls us to and what we believe is there's not enough we can do. Like that's that's sort of like allowing us to still be at the center, meaning white folks. Mm. There's an embodied solidarity we must be. And um, if you hyper-individualize it, it feeds into that conservative talking point, which is that like, well, see, he's rich, or see, they made it, mm. or I've got a black friend, or you know, like the data is in. The viral videos are just illuminating a groundswell of truth that Violence and harassment, whether through uh, disparate minority contact, through stop and frisk, police shootings, it's not an accident. It's because the whole machine is that black and brown bodies are a threat uh, to the norm, to the power structure, and must be policed. And, you know, it's a miracle oftentimes that Reverend Dr. King got anything done when you start to read about how much the FBI Mm. was up in his shit, Mm. not just surveilling him but actively working against his civil rights endeavors Mm. actively conspiring against him fucking with it and they did they blocked some stuff that he never even knew about in his lifetime Mm. um through their shadiness and uh j edgar hoover's racist vendetta against the whole movement so i'm not about the state getting up in people's business but i i do want to say like i it's not that hard to probably get on an FBI watch list when you start tweaking even mm-hmm. the the power structures in the United States. And that's what embodied solidarity will probably find for, I think, a lot of white folks when you start showing up. Here in Charlottesville and Elmore County, folks 
and by folks I mean white folks, would prefer quiet and civilized white supremacists to loud and passionate anti-racist activists. Mm-hmm. So we will accept anything as long as it allows us to just go about our day continuing um, with the lies that we believe about our right. society. And that if someone starts to raise their voice, all of a sudden we have to shut it down. And here in Charlottesville, and I think this is true across our nation, is that we would prefer civility and we will take civility even if black and brown bodies are being put into the ground. That even that, even, I mean, like you said, these videos are going viral. It's there. Like, we can watch it. There's no way to watch some of these videos and say, like, well, that person deserved to die. Um, But we can forget all of that and put it kind of in the back of our brain as long as civility and status quo allows us to keep going in this reality that we've constructed for ourselves. That's right. And maybe those voices are being raised is because you still sideline them to the margins and they're just trying to be heard. And that gets back to what we were saying earlier. Uh, center and and listen and more importantly, follow those voices if we want to get to where we say we want to be. What are some theologians you would recommend people read? especially womanist theologians, Mm. if we are to trust black women and follow their lead, uh, what's a good access point for people who want to go to there and then go and do likewise? Kind of the original would be Dolores Williams. Uh, Kind of some more contemporary, uh, Katie Cannon, um, going up to Kelly Brown Douglas. Pamela Lightsey is doing some great like queer womanist work. Um, or you can really just type in womanist to your Google machine and learn all about it. But those are some great starting points of theologians, uh, who I think are doing the work Mm -hmm. of, of gospel specificity. Wonderful. And so last question, you used to play fantasy football and follow the NFL. Yeah. But you don't anymore. I do not. I do not watch the NFL. I do not play fantasy football, and I turn off even ESPN when they're showing highlights. Good for you. Do you miss it? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I am an athlete through and through. Like That used to be my entire identity. And um, I was a very big fan of the Washington football team, whose yeah. name that I will not say any Ditto. longer. Ditto. And yeah, I loved playing fantasy football. And I was even a part of a really great group called Fantasy for a Cause. And then whoever won the group would get to give, you know, their money to a charity of their choice. And the year I won, I gave it to Sarah, which is the Sexual Assault Resource Agency. Love that. Um, But yeah, I can't do it anymore. And it's not that I even think that, like, me sitting out and not watching is going to change everything, right? But it's just a moral decision, and it's something that... I have to do for myself, knowing that everything about the National Football League is a propaganda machine for the military industrial complex. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, the the U.S. military pays the NFL millions of dollars to show the national anthem and to support military right. endeavors. And when you add things like abhorrent racism, CTE, um, you know, abuse of women, it just like yeah. sacks up and up and up and up. And I realize, you know, no no sport is fantastic. They're all 
um, money business operations. Right. Um, but the NFL, more than any other sports league, is situated to make white people feel good about being white people mm-hmm. and to continue the military-industrial complex. Right. And I, I can't do that anymore. Right. As Bree Newsom says, the NFL is a mammoth cultural institution reflecting America's dominant spirituality back to itself. What's really interesting in telling us, I found out just recently, I believe the military stopped paying um, the NFL for all those displays of um, jingoistic, uh, mm-hmm. you know, armed forces propaganda and flowers, but they they still did they it still like did that it. until less than it was less than a decade ago that players weren't even out there for the playing of the national right. anthem. You mentioned a few things I would I want to unpack in later episodes like CTE, violence against women, and using like the NFL as a jumping off point and fantasy football but what you mentioned about your personal boycott i think is important for everyone and you've named like the cost to giving this thing up um um you know it doesn't count if someone's like i don't eat there like if you wouldn't eat there anyway (laughs) kind of thing um and it's a a it's a discipline and those are some of the stakes we're rooting around for because discipleship discipling comes from discipline and our 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 churches, our faith communities, driving people toward, you know, what Bonhoeffer called a bit of the cost of discipleship. It scares people. And because we're all comfortable, or maybe someone really does have a spiritual wounding, but ignoring that actually, when you take on something that costs, it can be so freeing and liberating. Mm. And um, I think that's how we get there. White guilt, since we spent a lot of time on this, white guilt is the stuck place. Mm. White responsibility is liberating because you'll come much more alive to the truth that we belong to one another Mm. when you find yourself alongside those asserting the humanity that we say jesus loves in all of us Mm. but is yet yeah i like how you mentioned guilt because i heard someone say recently that that guilt comes from the the refusal to change Mm. And sometimes that is okay. We are guilted because we refuse to change in ways um, that aren't healthy, right? So mm. I am guilted for being a queer woman, mm-hmm. but I refuse to change that. That is who I am mm. and who has God created me to be. So there is there Ooh. is guilt there that I have to work through and realize that that is a lie. However, when I feel guilty about ways that I operate in my whiteness, it's because I'm refusing to change. Mm. And those are things that I should change. So I need to, to pay attention to my guilt yeah. and and really wrestle with like, is this guilt coming from the truth? Or is this guilt a lie? And I, I think we can't be like, all guilt is bad. No. Because sometimes that is a good feeling and it's telling us that we're refusing to change in a way that we need to. That's right. That's a powerful final word. Will you come back to the podcast, please? Oh, always. <laughs> All right. As long as you give me coffee. That's right. You've been listening to Reverend Brittany Kane Conley, Smash, uh, to those who know and love her. And I hope all of you listening uh, know and love her now. And follow her on Twitter at... Brittany Dare. There you go. Fuck that. Keep it real. Thank you again for riding along with F That Podcast as we do this little thing we're doing.
I want to leave you this week with a variation on a Franciscan benediction. I hope you hear it as both encouragement and challenge. May God and the spirit that brings true and lasting life bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships, so that you may live deep within your hearts. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, hungers, racism, white supremacy, misogyny, heterosexism, and homophobia, and violence, and war, and more, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and to turn their pain into joy. And may God bless us all with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in this world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done. May it be so.